Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, we are in a series on justice. Um, Before Easter and before Lent, um, we talked about the biblical um, stories of justice and what justice looked like in in scriptures. But now in this Eastertide season, we are looking at um, how we live out, uh, what scripture teaches us about justice. And so we're um, going down a new path. We, we solved racism last week, um, or at least opened up a whole bunch of worms. <laughs> so what, what racial pro- or what justice problems, excuse me, are we going to solve or at least open up some cans of worms in today, Sarah? So we're going to talk about justice for women, because women make up about 50% of the world's population. So, you know, a rather large group of people who frequently see injustice. Um, I I want to say I saw um, some numbers recently that the number one killer of women, um, like overall, or or something like it was either number one killer of women or all like the number percentage of women who experience this of like domestic violence or death is um, really, really high. And I don't like know what study I saw that from, so I don't really want to quote it too much. But like a lot of women experience injustice one way or the other, whether it's through domestic violence, whether it's through being paid lower than men, whether it's being um, like the number of women forced into sex slaves or the sex trade every year is, is really high. And it's, and I think that this is a problem, like the injustice towards women is something that's been around for a really, really long time. Um, The way that women in the Bible experienced injustice is probably not exactly the same way that we as women in America in the 21st century experience it. And the way we experience injustice as women is probably not the same as women in Asia today or women in Africa. Um, So it is very contextual. Like, I want to put that on the table right away, is that the way that women experience injustice is very contextual. But that doesn't mean that it's not real. So, and when you say contextual, I want to hear for clarity's sake, things like um, in the United States right now, it's probably universal or almost universal that yes, both boys and girls should get to go to school, but there are other places in the world where that's a battle that still has to be fought and where you need to support the creation of say girls school so that girls can go to school. That's not the the battle that needs to be fought or the conversation that needs to be had in the United States in the, the 21st century, but they are part of the same cloth as far as uh, the, the way uh, women are treated. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, cause, uh, yeah, if, cause girls do get education today, there are definitely career paths where it's seen as a man's field, like a field that is for men. Like this is a, this is a career. This is a program. This is a degree that, uh, 
only men should do. And that's problematic. But it's not as problematic as, say, 10-year-old girls being forced to leave school because she suddenly got her period and there aren't, like, so she's no longer allowed to go to school. Yeah. Those are both problematic, but 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 in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And and both of those are yet a world away from uh, like some of the, the the barbaric violence that is perpetrated against women in particular in things like the scriptures. Like so, what we'll talk about in a little bit that there are stories of violence um, that are part of the stories of the scripture. And again, n- nobody in the Bible is championing saying yes, this is what you should always do, but like that. The, the 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 stakes are different context to context, not just geographically, but also throughout time. Maybe maybe I I could offer this as um, what what seems to me a, a, a convicting point, both in this conversation about gender and also uh, in our conversation about race last time. And it seems like an underlying core issue is who gets to decide what default human is and that whatever isn't default human must therefore be seen as lesser than or secondary or not as important. And there are lots of ways that in racial categories for 500 years, it's been, while well, white is the, is the main way to be human. And I guess there's other ways too. Oh yeah. We should talk about them sometime. And similarly that with gender, there's been this assumption, Oh, male is sort of the default. That's the, the normal way to be human and women. They're just, they're the, the aberration. Um, and when you frame things that way, yeah, you're going to have all sorts of structures. Like you say, whether it's, whether it is something like women aren't allowed to be this profession because the assumption is, well, they're, they're the, the aberration from the default, you know, male, um, uh, or it, it leads to a sort of casualness about who gets treated, uh, or slighted or mistreated that like, if it's, injustice against someone who matters well surely we must take up the cause and defend them but if oh well it's, it's just it's just women or it's just that girl or it's just that um it then that that's part of the problem it seems to me that when you when you frame the discussion in terms of who really counts it becomes a lot easier to ignore when injustice is done to people who don't fit that default category so uh speaking of male as as default uh, there's there's quite a bit of understanding by the, theologians that God is genderless, that God is neither male nor female. Um, and, it, you know, you can point back to um, that humans are created in God's image. And, you know, it's not that man is created in God's image. It's that we all are. So that God is somehow neither or somehow both male and female. But because the Bible acts as if male is the default, all of the pronouns and most of the imagery for God is is male. And Mary Daly, who is a feminist theologian who I read in college, she she said um, when when ma- when God is male, male is God, and it's kind of like this this whole like her whole argument is that because we've made God male, we've kind of elevated the male gender, the male sex above everybody else because they're somehow closer to the divine than everybody else. Um, And 
and she wrote this, I think, in like the 1970s. And there was like a big push to start using feminine pronouns for God as well as the masculine pronouns that we're already used to. But of course, like uh, this is not something that we at least I don't practice and I consider myself a feminist theologian. I still have a really hard time calling God she or her. Because, like, that is just so foreign, I think, to most of our way of thinking because we're so ingrained. We're so used to calling God he. And there, there may be other, other layers of that, too, that, like, if, when, when, there's, when there's change of, of pronouns, you know, in, in the course of a conversation or the course of a sentence, it raises questions about, like, are we talking about a pantheon of different gods? And, like, I, I get it. We come from a monotheistic tradition that's pretty clear on there's one god, not Zeus and Apollo and Hera and all those. It, it, but, I mean, you raise this really important issue of um, how do we talk about the, the about who God is without without making either God sound like a force. I mean, we end up with that kind of problem too. If we end up saying, well, let's just use it, that runs into other problems as well. Um, uh, a whole different set of problems. But um, and and maybe maybe this is a problem we have in particular in in English that doesn't automatically put gender to nouns in the same way others do. But like in Hebrew, the word for spirit, the God's spirit, is feminine, ruach. Um, and that the Hebrew writers don't blush about that, but man, we sometimes get hung up on, uh, the variety of, of pronouns for, for God in English when Hebrew is comfortable talking about Ruach, the spirit of God that Christians confess to be no less God than God. Um, as that, that's, that takes a, a feminine pronoun. Um, may, maybe part of it is the baggage of the language that we speak too, and, Maybe, too, we get hung up on this is how we've always done it. If you're changing it, it must be wrong, as opposed to maybe there's been a variety of ways we've talked about God like for millennia. And just because I'm not aware of what else has been done doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. We have no way in the English language, um, like we have they and them, you know, it's kind of a a neutral pronoun, um, but we don't have a singular neutral pronoun. Um, like other languages do, or like you said, Steve, we're not comfortable with, um, you know, this God spirit being, being feminine in Hebrew. Um, Um, It seems to me like uh, there's wisdom in, even though sometimes it can be awkward. I heard, I heard somebody say once, and I I like this idea that the correct pronoun for God is God. Um, That in some ways God is, is enough other than, um, any of what it is to be male or female or uh, that like, maybe we should just say God um, and recapture some of that um, uh, otherness of, of God. This will be the Carl Bardian in me coming forth, but sometimes it's worth recovering the idea that God is, is just completely other than us in some ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sarah's point earlier that in Genesis one, both male and female are regarded as image of God. And that plurality is there in Genesis one, um, we've not been good at recognizing that, that sort of multiplicity within God's life. And sometimes we just want to iron it into, and, and maybe, maybe it's because when we picture God, so many of us, our, our starting point isn't Genesis one, but the Sistine Chapel. And like, we go, Oh, you know, God, yeah. The, the bearded fellow from the wall of the church or the ceiling of the church, rather than, Oh God, the one who is, who creates male and female in God's own image. 
And that, again, that says something about what we take as the default uh, pictures, you know, that like, instead of going back to our scriptures, so often our assumption, oh, God is that bearded fellow from Michelangelo's painting. That is a whole lot of baggage there. Mm-hmm. Gen- Genesis 1 also uses the royal we for God. Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't happen for very long. It's only like one chapter, maybe two chapters. But God is constantly talking at, with with plural pronouns, yeah. which is is an, a nice, is one way to sidestep the gender pronouns. But at the same time, does open a whole new co- topic of conversation about, is this God singular? Is this one God using the royal we, which is, you know, one person saying, you know, we think this, or is it actually more like a council of gods left over from, you know, creation myths where it was, you know, a whole host of gods and not just one, one true God. And to further complicate things, I don't want this to all be like weighted, weighted down in the, the technicalities of, of Hebrew, but the, the one of the names for God in the Old Testament is Elohim, which is a plural. Uh, Elohim is, is the plural. The singular would be El. And the, so the, the name Elohim is a, is a plural form for a, what is usually uh, used as a singular name. So like you'll get Elohim, which has the feel of a plural word in Hebrew, then taking a singular verb. Um, so that it gets really convoluted in the in the Hebrew. Uh, it seems like the consensus by the end is, oh, this is one God who's talking, but God's name is a plural name. Um, but yeah, that you end up with uh, that plurality in God, even there from the beginning, all the way down to the, the grammar of God's name. And, and like you say, Sarah, you do get in that Genesis 1, the let us create humankind in our image, feels like, who is God talking to? Now, some folks have said, well, that's the Trinity. Um, that's the council of, you know, that's that's the three persons. And that's a delightful Christian solution to that problem. I'm not sure the writers of Hebrew were willing to jump and say, oh, yes, we're, we're talking about the Trinity in advance. Um, but uh, they, we, we got to at least deal with the, the plurality in, in God that's there in the scriptures that sometimes we have conveniently forgotten or, or um, ignored. And it's not just that the scriptures, you know, consistently speak of God as he and use the male pronoun to describe God. Um, but throughout scriptures, we find stories uh, of occasionally where women show up and either they are basically silent. Um, they have a few things to say and usually are ignored or something terrible happens to them. And it just kind of like, well, yeah, that's just part of everyday life. We move on to the next story. You know, and, and so how do we deal with those kind of things, you know, when it comes to to justice for women? And, and how does that help us to um, see what justice looks like for women today when we have those kind of stories in Scripture? That that raises to me the, the question of, like, what things we allow to outrage us and what things we allow ourselves to be desensitized by. And that, that reveals what what things or what people we really think matter. And let, sort of like you say, when there's a story um, that sort of casually sort of glosses over, yeah, and, and the woman was cut up into 12 pieces and the 12 pieces were sent all over to the different tribes without batting an eye or um, 
if that's never called out in like uh, preaching or Bible study, say this was a terrible thing that happened and the Bible is not endorsing this. Um, like we end up being desensitized. And mm-hmm. on the other hand, um, when we do stop and make a big fuss about some small indignity in a Bible story, that sort of says, oh, well, these are the people who clearly matter. Oh, and the people we don't make a fuss about, they are the ones who clearly don't matter. Um, that sometimes it's a matter of when we speak and when we're silent that communicates who we think matters. So so I think that this is a very good conversation to have about how we view and understand God and what the language is that we use, because language is very important. Um, but where do we go from here? Like Erica raised the question of, um, and I'm not going to phrase it exactly right, Erica, I'm sorry. Um, but how do we how do we bring this back into 21st century America and the injustice that women are experiencing today? And, and I don't necessarily have a really good answer because I am a history major. And to me, just studying the history helps um, helps me understand how we got here today. Um but that doesn't necessarily help me figure out what the next steps are, you know, especially since injustice for women are so different depending on where you are and depending on your identity. Um, you know, cause we are, we are having this conversation as uh, three white people, um, you know, women of color in 21st century America suffer very different injustices than what I suffer as a white woman. Um, you know, the, the the feminist movement was up and running and going and it had to have a split. And now there's a womanist movement, which is for black women and women of color um, because the feminist movement was very much only interested in white women problems. And it was like, oh, white women now have the vote. Cool. We solved that problem. Let's continue on with the next issue. And all of these other women who are not white had to go, uh, no, we do not all have the right to vote. Hold up. Let's take a step back. Um, so, you know, that that is to say, even though we talked about race last last week, it's still, I think, a pretty big part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And and it's probably worth noting two ways that those two movements sometimes got pitted against each other. So it wasn't just that sometimes it was, well, we've achieved uh, uh, white women have the right to vote. Therefore, we can move on to the next issue. But sometimes folks within that uh, suffragette movement tried to persuade power brokers to say, we need to let white women vote so that we can outnumber blacks so that they don't get the power to vote or they can't, their voice won't be. And, like, and that to, to be able to call out... Um, Setting, setting groups against each other doesn't solve the problem. Um, and and there's, a, there's a way in which the, the conversation about race last time dovetails in the conversation here about not, not, um, not letting ourselves pit groups against each other um, or leave somebody behind because my little group got their, you know, something on their list. Mm-hmm. And and maybe you pointed out, Sarah, and this is this is poking at me that the idea of context being different, that maybe seeing this whole conversation as as woven of, of one piece of cloth, that like if our church 
um, wants to help support a girls' school. Like our, our congregations uh, and our, our Lutherans in our area are, are partners with a girls' school in Tanzania. Great. That's wonderful. And to say that's a piece of wanting to uplift uh, women and to treat them justly in that context. But that doesn't let us off the hook then for places where there's injustice in our backyard. And sometimes the temptation is to say, I, I gave my money to this thing far away because that doesn't change my world um, or that's easy to be okay with. And that's just throwing money at things. And therefore I'd let myself off the hook for having to look at ways in my own life where um, I am advantaged because of where I fall because of my privilege. And maybe that's a piece or at least me to say particularly um, that I don't get to let myself off the hook and say, well, our church did a fundraiser for the girls' school, therefore problem solved. Um, but to say that concern about needs far away should spur me on further to looking at where are there places where people are treated as less than right where I am, um, rather than just saying I, I did my piece with a service project for people across an ocean. Yeah, I think that's a very good place to start. I mean, we can't find justice. We can't help women seek justice either here or abroad until we know those places in which they need that justice to appear. You know, um, okay, so we know there's a need for a girls' school in Tanzania. Okay, we're working towards that. That's great. That's wonderful. Where do women need help? Where do where do they need to see better justice for them, you know, down the road? You know, like with family promise or, or, you know, a battered woman shelter or something. What are those ways that we can help? Um, like we said last week, putting faces to these issues. Um, you know, it, it's, it's fine and dandy to put faces, you know, of, of little uh, Tanzanian girls. Um, but we don't necessarily want to see the faces of our neighbors and realize that they are struggling Um you know, in very different ways, but just as much, you know. Um, and until we can put a face on that problem, there's nothing we're going to be able to do. Maybe two, and I know this is going to be a little bit ironic to say out loud, is that um, it will be important in particular for for me among the three of us as someone uh, with a Y chromosome uh, who's been given an awful lot of advantages without necessarily them being called out. Like usually when, when a privilege is awarded to you, bells don't go off and say, this is a special thing that only you get. It's just sort of treated like the default. And that's part of what makes it easy to just, oh yeah, this is just how it is. But an intentional practice for me to do more listening um, and less jumping up to speak first. There, um, uh, there are many Facebook clergy groups uh, for not only the ELCA, but also just for in general. And there was one of them that I was a member of for a while that um, for a while was practicing. Um, it was either Women's Week or Women's Day where just like once a, once a week or once a month, you know, if it was a week long thing um, where only women could speak. And this was again, a Facebook, Facebook group. So it was, um, and it was self-policed. Like, you know, it's not like if you were a guy and you weren't paying attention to, it was a uh, women's week, you'd get deleted. Um, it was more like that women would comment of like, Hey, did you know that this is a uh, women's week? Like, 
or Women's Day, I don't remember what it was, um, that only women could post and only women could comment. And it was just a way to like visibly practice that act of listening. Like, cause you could like, like button because i think this was back in the days when it was just like button there weren't any other reactions um you could do stuff like that but you couldn't actually comment and you couldn't post and it was just you listened to your sisters in faith um i don't think this group does that anymore because there was quite a bit of backlash and like the men folk did not like this practice which i think is also pretty telling of um what what would it what would it look like for the men folk to just listen mm-hmm. for a day? I can tell Steve really wants to say something, but he feels like he can't right now. It's okay, you can talk now. Um, at at the risk of the irony of like, and now I have to say something. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, but as as you say that, that seems like a helpful practice for for the male part of that exchange for two reasons, both to discover the insights that sisters would have and to discover what it is like not to be allowed or not to be given the platform to speak. And that both of those are important learnings. And that if somebody just said, well, let's not take men not allowed to speak for this day or this, you know, conversation, just let women say whatever they want to say. And like that gets half of it that, yep, you will theoretically be able to hear what insights they have to say, but it also doesn't address the, what is it like to be told either implicitly or explicitly, you don't get to talk or even more heavy handedly, God has said that you don't get to talk. Yeah. And I think that those were the two original goals. It's just after a while, the guys got tired of being told you can't talk, which, yeah, as somebody who's been told to be quiet in the church, it gets tiring being told not to speak. Mm-hmm. Let me invite them this, this question. Um, what else would you say to me in particular or to the chromosomes I represent what are other kinds of things that would be helpful for me to do or to say or to practice differently that would dismantle where there is injustice against uh, women? I think I think that's difficult because I, I definitely of of the frame of mind that one person cannot represent okay. a group of people. And what I would necessarily say to you is not what I would say to the entirety of, you know, male pastors or male Christians or just men in general. Okay. You know, because again, I I have that relationship with you and I'm, you know, where I don't want to necessarily put labels on people. I would, you know, if I were, I would probably say that you are a good feminist. So, Um, like, that is an entirely different, like, but what I would, you know, if I were to talk to all of my male colleagues, it would be listen more, invite those conversations of listening to your female colleagues about what sexism they haven't encountered in the church. Um, If I were to talk to male Christians, I would 
invite them again to listen, um, but also to, you know, learn more about the places in the Bible where women have been marginalized and how has that affected women Christians throughout history? Because again, I'm, I'm a history buff. So like, I think knowing that history is really important. Um, but in general, to to all men, I would say, don't be jerks. <laughs> Women are important too. And by making women important, that doesn't mean that you're less important. And so, you know, don't let your fragile ego get hurt just because I'm saying women are important. Importance is not a pie that when you cut a larger piece for one group, it means a smaller piece for the other. Correct. Um, I, I would second everything that Sarah said. Um, you know, Steve, we, we have that relationship too. And I agree with Sarah. You're a good feminist because you do listen to us. And I mean, and not just us, but women in general. I, I've seen you do that. Um, but I think that's the biggest thing is getting guys to, to not only listen, uh, just to appease us, but like, listen, truly listen and not come back um, with a quick answer or a, a quick solution. But yeah. Don't just, try to fix it. Yeah. Don't <laughs> fix it right away. Like, um, I mean, do what you can to try to fix it, to try to get other people to see what's, what's wrong and what's going on. But like, oftentimes when I'm telling somebody my problems, I don't want an answer. I just want to be able to vent and, and share. This is what I'm facing. This is what I'm dealing with. And, you know, if we can talk together and come up with a solution, great. But otherwise, just sit down and listen and don't say anything. One of the things that I'm hearing from both of you is um, getting away from a zero-sum game kind of picture of the world that, uh, like, lifting up other voices doesn't mean that uh, I should be afraid of losing mine, not seeing it as all not, as all in competition, but to say that there's value in letting other voices be heard and not being threatened by the presence of those other voices. Mm -hmm. And that there might be uh, connecting points then both in this conversation and going back to our conversation about race too, that instead of seeing it as, a zero-sum game of either my group wins or we lose, that, you know, it, it's okay to treat everybody with dignity um, and as though they all have something to contribute and that doesn't that doesn't demean or lessen uh, the, the worth that I bring to the conversation. It, it prevents me from making myself God, but it, <laughs> uh, it lets me recognize the value that everybody else brings to the table and that preserves my value rather than demeans it. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, my parting words for, to wisdom for everybody. Don't be jerks. Everybody <laughs> is important. I, I appreciate that. And I feel like that should go on a T-shirt or a bumper sticker. <laughs> Love your neighbor. Don't be a jerk. There you go. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a good it's a good policy. Now, <clears throat> and maybe maybe so that we don't. Um, fall into the trap that we joked about with the, the episode on race two, that it's not like us saying, oh, well, we talked about this for 32 minutes on one day. That solved the problem. And just saying, oh, well, it's just one time. All you have to hear is don't be a jerk. But part of what 
I need, part of what each of us needs, is the continued accountability of other voices around the circle who help us flesh out what that looks like. And maybe in a way similar to like um, when the guy comes to Jesus and asks about the greatest commandment and the answer is clear, love your neighbor. Everybody knows that. But what does love actually look like? We need to have the story of the Good Samaritan. Oh, this is what it looks like. Part of what I need then is the voices of others around me who will hold me to account and say, in this instance, this is what it looks like not to be a jerk. So don't be a jerk in this way, Steve, or don't be a jerk in this other way, other person. Yep. Sounds good. So shall, shall we stick a pin in the conversation then for now? I think so. Well, I'll thanks. I'll thank both of you for um, your bearing with me and for your uh, voices today. And uh, we'll invite everybody to join us for more conversation next time on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye. Bye.